Hello, sports fans, and welcome to Let Me Speak, the show that shares sports' biggest headlines explained, uninterrupted, and maybe a little audacious. I'm Joe Braverman, and today's topics we'll be discussing are... Is there truly a double standard going on right now in the NBA? Plus, diagnosing the latest news and rumors surrounding the NFL offseason. And... With spring training on the horizon, who are the teams to watch for in the MLB? It's episode 14 of Let Me Speak, and it starts right now. Back here on Thursday, July 8th, 2021, episode 30, 30 of Let Me Speak. Thank you very much, everyone, for tuning in, not only today, but for the first 29 episodes. The first 29 episodes has been absolutely fun. I enjoy this so much, and thank you all of you for tuning in, whether you're listening on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or you're watching right now on YouTube I really appreciate it, and hopefully 30 more are to come. And I hope everyone had a very happy and safe 4th of July. I know I talked about it the week before we went on our little vacation, but we had a big wedding celebrating. Shout out to my sister Julianne Sullivan, Julianne and Patrick Sullivan getting married this past weekend. Big shout out to them. Definitely a fun, fun wedding, and... Probably one of the few reasons I'd take a break from doing this podcast right here is to have great moments like this. But, you know, I took a little break, but there has been action aplenty, especially going on in the NBA, because we've got a championship being decided right now. The NBA Finals getting underway with Game 1 happening just a few nights ago. We got Game 2 tonight in Phoenix. Of course, if you've been living under a cave and haven't been paying attention, the Suns beating the Bucks in Game 1 on their home court. And really when I first looked at this matchup, it was kind of one of those matchups where you wouldn't be surprised about either outcome. You know, if Phoenix wins it, you wouldn't be surprised. If Milwaukee wins, you wouldn't be surprised. Really just inner things within the series might be of a surprising nature. But Really, these two teams, like going back to before we took that week off, just looking at those two series, I really enjoyed what Phoenix did against the Clippers in that series. And then Milwaukee, a little bit surprised to see them go a long way against Atlanta. Of course, Atlanta didn't have Trey Young, but I mean, Milwaukee didn't have Giannis, but that showed that how valuable Trey Young is as compared to Giannis. Uh, compared to their teams. Atlanta, outside of Trey Young, not a ton of options that can really replace that kind of offense that Young has. And then Giannis, you just insert Drew Holiday, you insert Chris Middleton. That's really all it was, and Milwaukee found their way into the NBA Finals. But like I said, it's a matchup. Either outcome wouldn't surprise anyone, but there are very important keys in this series. The first one for me, I want to look at Milwaukee's side of things. And of course, the elephant in the room for Milwaukee is the health of their two-time MVP. 
It's about Giannis, his health and his stamina. Obviously, you have to be thanking the Lord above that it was nothing more than a hyperextended knee because it did not look pretty. When Giannis had that injury, it did not look pretty. And it went all the way from he was going to be out for a long time to he's just going to be out for the series. Then he's going to be out for a couple of games. And then all of a sudden, poof, he finds himself playing in game one. And just just looking at it and looking at that game, Giannis, just his health and his stamina, yeah, he was moving pretty good and he had a good stat line. 20 points and 17 rebounds over 35 minutes in that game one. But just they, there were a lot of times that I just saw him gas. Like he looked absolutely tired at multiple points. And part and part of it is that he plays so hard, which you have to admire for a player like Giannis, who's got his talent. He plays hard, but he's got to learn how to pace it out. And, you know, we're seeing that the hyperextended knee, it looks okay. So now it really comes down to stamina. And Giannis, he's just got to find a way to, you know, pace himself where he can stay on the floor much longer. I mean, you look at some of the minutes for the other guys. I mean, Chris Middleton played 45 minutes. Drew Holiday played 40 minutes. I mean, in the NBA Finals, you're seeing guys pull a Kevin Durant and play all 48 minutes. So that's really what it's going to come down to. How is Giannis going to be able to pace himself where he's not going to be gassed 24-7 obviously you know when you have his kind of skill set you want to be attacking the basket rather than shooting three pointers from the outside all the time so Giannis just has to find a way to really shift gears you know in that first half don't go as hard as you would in the second half and find yourself gassed that's really going to be what it comes down to when you're talking about Giannis's side because you know, he did play 35 minutes. Who knows if that's just to get the rust off. But in the NBA Finals, Giannis should be playing about 40 minutes, maybe 45 minutes, something like that, similar to Middleton and Holiday. So it could be just a game one overreaction, but the stamina for Giannis is going to have to improve to get himself more minutes on the floor because we've seen on the floor how effective he can be. Now, the second key point that I want to look at for Milwaukee is the defensive strategy by coach Mike Budenholzer because we saw it in the previous series against Miami then we saw it against Brooklyn then we saw it against Atlanta that Milwaukee's a very inconsistent team more so on the defensive side you know what is that defensive strategy going to be because when you look at game one the Suns absolutely abused Milwaukee on the pick and roll. You watching that pick and roll, you got Brooke Lopez hanging out in the paint. They're switching everything. So we're getting there were a lot of just mismatches. You know, you got Brooke Lopez on Chris Paul. You have PJ Tucker on DeAndre Ayton. Like those matchups will favor Phoenix over Milwaukee every single time. So what is that strategy gonna be for Coach Bud? What is he gonna do to fix all the mistakes in game one because Phoenix got out to like a 20 point lead because they were just having their way in terms of the matchups you know Chris Paul was getting what he wanted on the switch off the pick and roll Devin Booker was getting mismatches he was standing there for the open shot you know it's all about in-game adjustments and we've seen in this postseason that coach Bud does not make a ton 
of in-game adjustments, or at least not enough to really make a big impact. So what is he going to do? Is he going to maybe limit the limits, limit the minutes on Brooke Lopez and maybe get Bobby Portis out there for defense? Do you go with P.J. Tucker getting on to Devin Booker possibly? I mean, what is the strategy going to be for Coach Bud? Because if his defense and his game plan plays the exact same way that it did the earlier night in Game 1, you might as well call this series over. You might as well call it over because Phoenix will have their way if they continue to play defense like that. So it's not necessarily on his guys. It's about Coach Bud and what is he going to do to adapt to what Phoenix brings him. But then the third key for Milwaukee to come out of the series with an NBA title is not relying heavily on the three-pointer, okay? It's not life and death, and we've seen that. You know, I talked about it during their Brooklyn series about how they have the size down low and they should be taking advantage of it in points in the paint. You don't necessarily have that here because you have DeAndre Ayton down low that can match with a Giannis, with a Bobby Portis, with a Brook Lopez. You have that guy. But still, you look at the numbers. They were plus 5 on 3-pointers. 16 of 36 for about 44.5%. Okay? So, that it's good to have plus 5, but look at the free throw margins, okay? Phoenix took 10 more free throws than Milwaukee did. So they have to learn to attack the basket more. And I understand Giannis, you know, he's got his self-timer with the fans ticking down while he's at the free throw line. But you've got guys like Drew Holiday. He needs to get to the basket. Chris Middleton needs to get to the basket. Brooke Lopez has to be a 7-foot center and not stand out on the three-point arc, okay? They have to get into the basket. They have to get it. And yeah, they can talk about, oh, Phoenix had 10 more free throws, but that's because they attacked the basket more. And they were, Milwaukee, again, made five more three-pointers, okay? You attack the basket a little bit more, you get to the free throw line a couple more times, then you make it a closer game than it was. But that's ultimately what I'm seeing for Milwaukee is that they're relying too much on a three-point shot. And if you got guys like Drew Holiday who had an off night, guys like Chris Middleton, guys like Pat Connaughton, Bryn Forbes, Jeff Teague, all these guys, three-pointers aren't going to solve everything, okay? And yes, they were the highest-rated offense in the NBA this year, but still, we're learning in this postseason that defense still wins championships, and it's much easier to defend the three-pointer than it is attacking the basket. So attack the basket, change your defense, and Giannis' stamina. The big factors for Milwaukee to win this title. Now on the other side of the court, for Phoenix, I really enjoyed watching that Suns team the way they played. They, they're just, to me, they have it all put together, and they had the strategy basically since they started the postseason. But there are three important keys that I think for Phoenix to really solidify their title chances the first off what I saw in game one was just setting the pace and setting the tempo it just seemed like Phoenix was on the fast break for a majority of that game and why shouldn't they they have a lot of young quick guys obviously with Paul and Booker in their backcourt but then you have guys like Cameron Payne 
off the bench. Cameron Johnson off the bench. Torrey Craig and just all these guys off the bench that really, it looked like they just had way more fast break opportunities. And again, going back to the Milwaukee defense that the Bucks were just kind of left napping basically on defense and they weren't ready for that sudden quick pace and the turnaround and they do it with a lot they go on the fast break and they hit a trailer three they pass it out for a corner three they drive the basket they get that extra pass they did so well on the fast break that I think if they can keep that up in these next few games if they set the pace and the tempo they immediately go into overdrive and get into that fast break then it's going to be tough for Milwaukee to really keep up with them because like I said you have a gassed Giannis Antetokounmpo you have a Brooke Lopez who's not the fastest guy in the world but I think a guy like DeAndre Ayton like I said for those two guys he's got to beat everyone because that was really a huge key in that fast break was that they had the paint open which can allow Ayton to cut in there and just go for the easy slam. That's going to be the biggest thing is if DeAndre Ayton on the fast break can outrun all those guys on the Bucks and get down low in the quickest amount of time, then Phoenix should have their way. Absolutely no problem. But speaking of Ayton, that brings me to my second key is that who is going to be in that backup role? when DeAndre Ayton goes to the bench because, you know, rumor has it that Dario Saric tore his ACL in game one. That takes him out. And he's a very underrated player, I think. He's a 6'10 power forward. He's great on both ends of the floor. He's good on the offense. He's not the he's not a defender compared to Ayton, but he still can hold his own. And he gives you size down low when Ayton goes to the bench. That's your center right there, basically from what we're seeing Phoenix roll out with their rotation, eight or nine guys deep. Now, we saw in game one that they tried a bunch of different things. They tried putting in Frank Kaminsky. He's a little bit limited, so he wasn't quite the answer. But we're seeing a lot more minutes for Torrey Craig. So it seems to me that Phoenix is going to go small ball when they send Aiton to the bench. That's that's ultimately what I'm getting, is that they go small ball which Milwaukee could take advantage of, but Phoenix, their ball movement is incredible to watch. And they really share the ball. Everyone knows their role. It's going to be interesting to see about that second unit. Does DeAndre Ayton possibly play more minutes? Or does Torrey Craig continue to take on that role that Sarich had as the backup behind Ayton? Because Craig isn't the biggest guy in the world. You know, he's probably listed at a small forward slash power forward kind of area. But it could be a small ball kind of thing. Maybe they stick with getting Kaminsky out there for about five minutes or so just to give Aiden some rest. It'll be really interesting to see, especially tonight, what the rotation for Phoenix looks like without Saric as that backup center. But the third and final key, I would say, is matching up Chris Paul and Devin Booker. Just those two balancing each other. Because we know that the offense runs through them, essentially. I mean, look at the numbers that they had. CP3, 32 points and 9 assists. Devin Booker, 27 points, 6 assists. Okay, so both are the masters at pick and roll. I think that big three with those two plus Aiden in the pick and roll should be a cakewalk. Should be a cakewalk if... Milwaukee continues to defend it the way that they have. That's really the 
biggest thing that I see is that can those two match each other? You know, it doesn't necessarily have to be Paul being the leading scorer every night or Booker being the leading scorer every night. It's just the fact that they hang with each other. That's going to be the biggest thing. And obviously, Booker was limited. Obviously, he had the broken nose. He wore the mask, etc., etc. But if those two are able to match each other in terms of offense, you know, games like this where only five points separates them, if they can match with each other, then it should be easy for Phoenix to come out of this series. And then using the pick and roll with their big guy, with Aiton, you know, we saw that a lot with Chris Paul. He was getting his shots. Booker was getting his shots. Aiton was rolling to the basket with basically no resistance. That's why I think Phoenix will ultimately win this series. I think they're going to win this series in five games. I think it's going to be a very short series. You know, Milwaukee, like I said, is just too inconsistent. They're like night and day. Basically, with the way they play, they play extremely well, but then they play terribly. You know, there are nights where you're like, wow, this is a very good team. This team can win an NBA title, but then they have games like in game one where you're kind of scratching your head saying, this team should be better than this. What are they doing? And it all could come down to coaching, like I said. But ultimately, when all is said and done, I think the Phoenix Suns are going to win this NBA championship I think they'll take it in five games. I think Chris Paul is going to be the finals MVP. And I, you know, I've just been rolling with the Suns really ever since the Lakers series. Once they won the Lakers and they beat the Lakers, sort of my heart and soul was saying, Chris Paul is a guy who deserves a ring. He's been around long enough. This is his first NBA finals and he's not going to waste it because CP3 doesn't have that many seasons left. I mean, he's 36 He's 36, and it's almost like he can see that ring, and he's going to do whatever it takes to get himself a championship. So that is my NBA Finals prediction. Phoenix Suns will be the 2021 NBA champions. But regardless of if that prediction comes true or not, it should be a very fun and entertaining NBA Finals. Well, while the NBA has their championship going on, we did crown a champion last night in the world of hockey as the Tampa Bay Lightning, for the second straight year, won the Stanley Cup. They beat the Montreal Canadiens last night 1-0. They win the series in 5-4-1. And really, just quick thoughts from that Stanley Cup. I mean, Tampa did win in five games, but it really only took one game, essentially. It took that game one for me to really recognize, oh, okay, the Lightning are going to win it back-to-back. I mean, look at the the games and all there. Tampa, 5-1. Tampa, 3-1. 6-3. Lost in overtime, 3-2, and then won 1-0. Won but, I mean, Montreal did find their mojo. They were finding their mojo. They had some close games, but ultimately it was just too little too late. I mean, really, it was just... Like I said, too little, too late. Montreal, they kind of found their identity. They knew how to attack. And you saw it in, you know, the last stages of Game 4 and then all along in Game 5. I mean, one to nothing in that clincher. I mean, Montreal, they knew how to attack this Lightning team. And they got pretty close. I would say they were very, very close. I mean, 
give them maybe five more minutes. You know, Montreal could have made a series out of this, but like I've been saying since the start of this postseason, Tampa is just too dang good. They've got so many pieces. I mean, what was interesting listening to the broadcast is Pat Maroon, who was a key point, has now won three straight Stanley Cups. He he was on the St. Louis team, and then he was on this two Tampa teams. But, you know, like I said, this, this Tampa team is just unreal. Absolutely unreal. And, you know, I was riding with them throughout the entire postseason. You know, they finished in second, you know, behind the Hurricanes. But I was just riding with them. They had a ton of great offensive pieces. They knew how to attack. And, you know, it doesn't surprise me that they would be the favorite again for next year. But just the way Tampa played in this Stanley Cup was basically a cutthroat style of we're going at the net and we're going to shoot, shoot, shoot. We're going to test your goaltender here because Carey Price was playing great. He played great, especially in that overtime win for Montreal. He played great, and you can see why he's been around for a very long time for that Canadiens team. Tampa just kept shooting the puck. They shot and shot and shot, but Carey Price, yeah, he had a couple of hiccups, you know, but again, similar to the whole team finding their mojo around game four, that's when Carey Price really started to find his footing in the crease, and he kind of knew the moving parts of Tampa, but just ultimately... You know, just, again, too little, too late. Because Montreal, yeah, they got that game four, but their mayor, Tampa Bay's mayor, said, you know what, give them game four. Let's win in game five. And sure enough, they did. They They went and they won game five. But I'm giving, you know, credit to Tampa Bay, but also Montreal, the fact that they were ultimately the 16th team to make the postseason as I say every time we talk about the NHL and we talk about Montreal the Canadians being statistically the worst team to make the playoffs and to go all the way to the Stanley Cup I mean my my hat's off to them it's one of probably the most recent Stanley Cup run one of the more impressive runs I would say because you know name me a few guys on that Montreal team that you didn't know about before the Stanley Cup. For me, it was only Carey Price. But, I mean, Caulfield came in as a rookie and played his lights out. You had Stahl come in there. Just all of these guys, you know, it it shows how important the team aspect is to the Stanley Cup. And Montreal had a great neutral zone defense, you know, all throughout their postseason run. They... They took out the Golden Knights. They took out everyone in the Canadian division. So props to them for making it this far because no one would have predicted that at the beginning of this postseason that the Stanley Cup final would be the Tampa Bay Lightning and the Montreal Canadiens. No one would have expected it. No one even expected them to get out of that North division. So, you know, watch out for this team in 2021. In 2022, they pick up some big offseason acquisitions. They could find themselves maybe a little bit better than that 58 points on the season, especially when hopefully the NHL gets a full season. But back to Tampa, you know, Tampa's just becoming title town first off before I get into the Lightning team once again. 
I mean, you had the Bucks win the Super Bowl on their home field. You had the Rays as American League champions making the Stanley Cup. I mean, the Lightning winning back-to-back. I mean, it's it's unreal. Tampa has become the modern-day uh, title town. And, you know, just it's it's unbelievable what the Lightning have been able to do. You know, just putting up – they were just dominant, I would say. Absolutely dominant. And I was riding with them – again, I'll say it, riding with them at the beginning of the postseason. And Game 5 was really probably the hardest game that they had to play. You know, one nothing. They have their rookie Ross Colton on the left wing putting in the only goal of that game. But really, when you look at it, the two teams combined for 50 – Two shots, only 52 shots, but yet Vasilevsky made all 22 saves, and it was just a neutral zone kind of game. You know, not a ton of attacking the net between these two. It was a real defensive battle. Faceoffs were essentially 50-50. Tampa was just a little more physical, out hitting the Canadians 56-48. And Tampa, they just they know how to adapt. They know how to adapt to. Basically, every team that they had faced, you know, they knew that it was going to be a grind. You know, it wasn't going to be 5-1. It wasn't going to be 6-3 like it was previously. This was a gritted down, nail-biter, one nothing, and that's what Tampa did to seal their second Stanley Cup. So props to the Tampa Bay Lightning for being the back-to-back Stanley Cup champions and winning it and celebrating on their home ice. Up next, we have to talk about the MLB because the All-Star break is less than a week away and we can't wait to get a break off. We talked on our last episode about the surprising disappointments at the halfway mark, but this week, it's all about the fun. We talk about the Home Run Derby and we talk about maybe some of the players who should have been in the All-Star game and maybe not selected as replacements which is the topic of this week's segment known as Hot Takes. So just a predecessor is that things could change before Tuesday's game. We're already finding out that Jacob deGrom said he's skipping the All-Star game. We found out today a couple of the Astros aren't going to make it. They're going to skip it with Jose Altuve and Carlos Correa. So things could change. But before the snubs... We got to talk about the Home Run Derby. They just released the bracket here today. So just looking at the bracket real quick. In the first round, Shohei Otani is the number one seed. Joey Gallo is the two seed. Matt Olson at three. Salvador Perez at four. Pete Alonso at five. Trey Mancini at six. Trevor Story. And then Juan Soto. Now, I myself see three players, essentially, who are the favorites, I would say. The first one pretty obvious I mean this is another step for Shohei Otani to take over the entire league okay he's turned himself into a transcendent player and it's probably going to be the AL MVP so if he doesn't win that would be a shocker very surprising if he did not win this thing this is his coming out party the Angels are going nowhere it's another step for him to take over this league that's contender number one for me contender number two is Joey Gallo I mean the Rangers are going nowhere absolutely nowhere 
And this is Joey Gallo's opportunity to show himself as a star because Lord knows no one's paying attention to the 34 and 53 Texas Rangers. Okay, this is Joey Gallo's opportunity to get himself on the map and for people in the baseball world to take him seriously. Yeah, he's a second-time All-Star, but still, who pays attention to the Texas Rangers outside of people in Arlington? That's the biggest thing. So that's contender number two. And contender number three has to be the feel-good story. It's Trey Mancini. I mean, this is a dude who missed last year for battling cancer, okay? He comes back from cancer, and he comes, and he wins the home run derby. I mean, that should be the feel-good story of the year. I mean, also, the Orioles, just like the Rangers, they're in a worse spot. They're 28-58. and 58. Mancini has nothing to lose. He's just going to go out there, put on a show, and win the home run derby, and make it the feel-good story of 2021. For a year that has to be redeemed with good news, this would be one of the best news if Mancini beats cancer, comes back, and wins the home run derby. And plus, it'll give Baltimore's Finally, some exposure. Finally, give them some exposure for the crappy team they've been for the God knows how long. I mean, yeah, what do you discount? Like maybe three, three seasons recently that they've been good. Outside of that, they have been mediocre at best, at best. But that's the home run derby. Let's talk about the MLB All Stars and maybe some players that I was just looking at the the roster. Really, there are just a couple of names that kind of break out to me makes me say hey why are they not all-stars how are they not all-stars and the obvious one has to be Max Scherzer I mean how the hell is he not an all-star he's in the top five in ERA at 2.10 he's seven and four yeah the Nationals are 42 and 43 but still you know he's one of the best pitchers in this game how is he not on this team now it obviously could change because he could replace Jacob deGrom and that would be my first selection for if Jacob deGrom pulls out of the all-star game put in Max Scherzer Max Scherzer to replace him okay that's that's how I would see things but Max Scherzer has been too good for too long to not be on this all-star team Absolutely not. And the dude's been on the team for, what, seven straight years, eight straight years? And, you know, before Jacob deGrom, he was regarded as the best pitcher in baseball. All right? How does Scherzer not get on this team? How is he not selected? All right? He has a good year every single year. Yeah, this is, quote-unquote, a down year. But still, being 7-4 and four with a 2.10 ERA is something most pitchers could only dream of. That is the biggest, it's a, it's a shame. It's an absolute shame that Scherzer has to be named as an injury replacement rather than getting selected right out of the way. But another pitcher I'm kind of thinking of, Anthony DiSclefani. I think he should be in Denver too. I think he should be representing one of the best teams in the National League, the San Francisco Giants. I mean, the Giants only have three All-Stars. Only three All-Stars, okay? They have Brandon Crawford. They have Buster Posey, and they have Kevin Gosman. All right? This is a Giants team surprising everybody. Everybody. For a, t- for a division that had the Padres and the Dodgers in it, they're the ones leading right now. Okay? 
And not only that, but the numbers. Anthony DiSclefani, 9-3, and 2.84 ERA. You're telling me that he's not good enough to make the All-Star team? You know, th- this is why I kind of hate the MLB's rule that they have to have one player from every single team. Okay? It- it- it's kind of... It's kind of ridiculous in a way, but Di Sclafani should be on that team. He should be in Denver right now, and he should play in that all-star game at Coors Field. He really should, because I am a big fan of the San Francisco Giants. I think they should be rewarded much more. I mean, look at some of the teams who don't have the same kind of record, who have the same amount, if not more, all-stars. I mean, the Houston Astros have the same record, and they're sending more players to the game, all right? Look at the Brewers. Look at the Dodgers. Look at the Padres. They have a better record than them, but yet they only have three All-Stars. Three All-Stars. Kind of a shame. Kind of a shame. That's what I would say. A third guy I would say, Mike Zanino, okay? Now, the argument here is that... There are no catchers in the American League right now who are any better than him right now, okay? And I get he's hitting 18 home runs and 36 RBIs, which are the best among catchers, at least for the home runs, that is. But he's hitting 198. 198 as a batting average. And that's good enough to get you an all-star team? I mean, that, that that's ridiculous. Absolutely ridiculous among cat among catchers he's bet he's the best in home runs but it's not about home runs it's about batting average batting average okay and i get the options are kind of limited because salvador perez yeah he's the starter and he's hitting 302 but i mean come on you christian vasquez wilson christian vasquez has a better batting average okay but it's just it's it's irritating. I mean, you could throw Sean Murphy in there. He's hitting 210, but he's got 10 home runs and 38 RBIs. Okay? You could throw in Gary Sanchez 13 and 30 with home runs and RBIs. He's hitting 234. There are so many more options than Mike Zanino. Okay? And I get it. He's like the starting catcher of the defending AL champs. So, that's probably why he got selected to be in the All-Star team. But then the fourth and final one that I would say kind of shocked me that he didn't make it, Yuli Gurriel. I thought he could have made the all-star team as well. Listen to these numbers. 319 as a batting average, 10 home runs, and 54 RBIs. Okay? Among first basemen, I would say, you know, how, how does he not make the all-star team? That, that was very surprising to me. But, I mean, you also have to look at, you know, everyone else he's going up with. First baseman... Vlad Guerrero Jr., you had to you had to make him a starter. And then Matt Olson from the Oakland Athletics. I mean, no one else is there for Oakland, so you kind of had to put him in that slot. So you kind of get it, but, you know, like I said, his teammates, uh, Correa and Altuve, they said they're not going to play in the All-Star game. They're going to skip the festivities. So who knows? He could be a replacement right there. But just, you know, the big hot take that I have regarding this MLB all-Star game is that MLB is rewarding the home run ball way more than they normally do. That's really all it is. Because in the game that I remember and watching growing up, if you had anything above 
a 300 average. If you had like a 270 or a 260 average, yeah, you get some consideration right there. But we're seeing guys like, you know, some guys are obvious, like Shohei Otani, who's hit 32 home runs. He's a lock. And But guys like Mike Zanino, who's hitting 18 home runs, but hitting 198. Like, that's still good enough to get an all-star team. Th- this is why I'm not the biggest fan of, you know, Rob Manfred right now. Because not only does he decide to throw in the sticky substance crackdown in the middle of the season, but... All of all of MLB is basically rewarding home runs. All right, they're they're taking away the small ball aspect of things, which is which is kind of sad. It's it's very sad because stolen bases and good defense should still be a factor, and they still are a factor for teams who are successful and go a long way. That's ultimately what it is that the MLB is doing. They're taking away that aspect of the game and only looking at the long ball and RBIs. But you know, the All-Star game is not meant for gripes and all of that. It's just about having fun. And I got a feeling that the Home Run Derby and the All-Star game itself are going to be a lot of fun at Coors Field this upcoming Tuesday. Moving on now, it is time for our Let's Get Local segment of the week. Kind of a quiet week if you're talking about it here in the region of New England. But obviously you got to talk about the Boston Red Sox and their continued winning ways. But before we get into that, there was actually a little bit of news in the Red Sox world that was a little minor. Uh, we just heard the retirement of former Red Sox pitcher Daisuke Matsuzaka. If you remember back in 2007 when he was signed, you know, it was Daisuke mania around here in the city of Boston. Everyone fell in love with Daisuke Matsuzaka, just his personality, you know, he was, he was a big factor in that 07 championship team. And you know, it, it was kind of tough. I, you know, I wish he could have stayed longer. He was definitely a fan favorite. But just, you know, he had maybe his first two seasons were pretty good. And then he just kind of trailed off a little bit. Then he bounced around a little bit in the minor leagues. I remember he had a little bit of time with the New York Mets for a couple of seasons. I remember that. And, of course, he revolutionized the gyro ball, which is... I don't know even what that thing. It's like a split curveball or something like that. Some weird combo like that. No one's ever thrown the gyro before. You know, we're still waiting on a pitcher to throw that pitch as well. But, you know, Daisuke Matsuzaka, a big salute into his retirement at age 40. How he was a big, big factor in the 07 championship team and wish him nothing but the best for his retirement. But let's talk about this Red Sox team right here. The owners of the most wins in baseball right now, which is, again, just still surprising to see. To see the Red Sox owning the most wins and sending five All-Stars out to Coors Field. I mean, 54 and 34. It's just, I'm baffled. I'm absolutely baffled. I thought this team was going to be good, but I didn't think they were going to be this good, especially with the the roster that's made up. I mean, 
You know, they're holding 54 wins with the Astros and the Giants for the most in the MLB. And, of course, like I said, they're sending five All-Stars. To me, I was a little surprised to see Nathan Evaldi making the All-Star team. I mean, he has been the best pitcher, the start, best starting pitcher for the Sox team. I mean, 9-5, and five, a 3.66 ERA. So a little bit surprised to see Evaldi make the team, make the All-Star team along with Matt Barnes, J.D. Martinez, Xander Bogarts, and Rafael Devers. But, I mean... When you're talking about this team at the All-Star break, the biggest thing that they have to work on, obviously it's the starting rotation. It has to be the starting rotation. And who knows, it could get a boost when Chris Sale returns. We're still we're still waiting to see how he's going to come back, when he's going to come back. That's going to be the biggest thing for the Red Sox to figure out. If they think they could go for a run at the title, then you throw him in the starting rotation. If... You don't think it's their year this year, then you possibly put him in the bullpen, limit his innings. You know, it's going to be really interesting to see what they do with Chris Sale. But the starting rotation is still going to need a boost. And more in particular, Eduardo Rodriguez, Garrett Richards, they got to step up their game. I mean, Rodriguez is 6-5 and five with a 5-5-2 ERA. So I don't know what happened to his control or anything like that. If he's still suffering from COVID or something like that. But Rodriguez has just not been the the starting pitcher that you want him to be. And this is a guy who, if it comes down to a postseason series, would probably be the second starter, a Game 2 starter, or a Game 3 starter, essentially. But then you have Garrett Richards. You know, I, I questioned a little bit that signing because I didn't think he was, you know, the ultimate option that the Red Sox had. And we're kind of seeing it four and five with a four eight eight ERA. You know that's gonna that's gonna have to get better, obviously. And you know we've heard Richard saying, you know, you know now that there are no sticky substances, I'm learning to regrip the baseball. I'm learning new pitches as we go. Well, <laughs> that's great if you're a Red Sox fan to know that a starting caliber MLB pitcher, probably your fourth or fifth starter, is learning new pitches. That's that's always a confidence booster if you're a Red Sox fan. <laughs> I mean, he does get the ball tomorrow night in the last series in the series opener against the Phillies at Fenway, which is the last series before the All Star break. So, who knows? Maybe the All Star break will be good for this team. Possibly, maybe for Garrett Richards, he'll he'll find his mojo back. He'll take some time off a little bit, get a few days off, and kind of get that get that mojo back because he'll he'll have occasional good starts. He'll have occasional good starts, but. There are, you know, some games like in, in the Oakland series that he barely gets out of there, in the Kansas City game where he, he couldn't get out of there. I mean, this starting rotation, whether that's via trade, via a Chris Sale return, the starting rotation has to get better. It has to get better because if you told me with other postseason teams out there that this starting five would consist of Nathan Evaldi, Eduardo Rodriguez, Nick Pavetta, Garrett Richards, and Martin Perez, I would say, hmm, maybe that's not the exact starting rotation I would like to go with in the postseason. But who knows? You know, things could change. There's still a whole second half of the MLB season to go. But then the second thing I would say is that the leadoff spot is going to have to, you know, they're going to have to find some, some clarity in that one. And obviously, 
They've gone back and forth with Kike Hernandez and Danny Santana. I ultimately think that Hernandez is going to be the guy who takes that leadoff spot. And he, he, he just feels like the guy. You know, he is only hitting 239, 10 home runs, 26 RBIs. But just over the last couple of games, he's played better. Over the last couple of games. And, you know, not saying he's exactly like what Mookie Betts was as a leadoff, but... You know, he could be a Mookie Betts leadoff guy where you're not necessarily looking for, you know, just getting on base, but just, you know, getting in the RBIs, getting in the extra base hits, getting the home runs, you know. That wouldn't be necessarily a bad thing for the Red Sox if Kike Hernandez was that kind of leadoff guy. And, you know, I did list the numbers, but he played great during that eight-game winning streak. And he had a couple of good hits, a couple of good home runs. You know, I... I'm a fan of Kike. I li- I like him in that leadoff spot. I think getting that top of the order is very important. Having him lead it off, followed by Verdugo. Then you go with Bogarts, Martinez, Devers. I forget exactly what it was, but I know Vasquez or something like that. But just getting that top of the order is, is very important for the Sox team because the Sox team is basically led by their offense, by their three power hitters, like I was talking about. They're all-stars in... Martinez, Devers, and Bogarts. But if you have a leadoff guy like Kike Hernandez, you have a good second guy in that lineup, Alex Verdugo. I I like this offense. I like where the lineup is. I'm a fan of Bobby Dahlbeck. I'm going to stay with him during his struggles. You know, I like like the lineup. And I like what they have even on their bench with Christian Arroyo, Marwin Gonzalez. I like those guys. But the leadoff spot is is going to have to be figured out. I think they will figure it out, and Kike will be the guy. And then just the starting rotation is going to be very important for the Sox team. And we'll see how they can close out the first half in their weekend series that starts tomorrow night against the Philadelphia Phillies. But they're the only team that's active right now. We're still waiting on the Patriots to kick off their season. They'll be starting their training camp in a couple of weeks, and... There was actually kind of some news out of Patriots camp as the agent for Nikhil Harry has said that it's time to move on. Nikhil Harry wants to be traded from the Patriots, which is what his agent said on Tuesday. Now, I don't know if that's such a good idea. If you're Nikhil Harry, I mean, let me tell you about his trade value. There is none. That's why I paused is because there is no trade value. You'll barely get like a sixth or seventh rounder or something like that if you want to trade Nikhil Harry. I mean, you're basically going on potential, essentially, because we're entering year three of the Nikhil Harry experiment here in New England. And so far, out of a possible 33 games that the Patriots have played, including the postseason, he's only played 21 out of them. 21 out of 33 games he's played in. And listen to these numbers over his first two years. 45 receptions, 414 yards, and four touchdowns. Keep in mind, this was a guy who was the very first wide receiver picked off the board in that 2019 NFL draft. Picked over guys like Debo Samuel, A.J. Brown, D.K. Metcalf, and Terry McLaurin, just to name a few. How how does Nikhil Harry think he's going to get a good trade value with numbers like that? I mean, come on. How is he going to do that? The question is, you know, 
is he going to stick with this? Or is it just his agent talking? Or is does that really how Nikhil Harry feels? Okay, who knows? He could have a breakout season, and that could increase his trade value. But for right now, he has none. No trade value. So if I'm New England, I say, forget it. We have no trade value for you. If you start playing better, then maybe at the deadline we'll shop you. But there's no way, no way that he has any kind of good trade value. But you know some NFL team out there is going to be dumb enough to say, hey, we'll give you two first-rounders. We'll give you two second-rounders and a first-rounder if you give us Nikhil Harry. You know some team is going to be like that, some wide receiver needy team or something like that. Maybe like a Baltimore or an Arizona, something like that. I don't know. I'm just naming teams out there. But some team is going to say that his potential is much more than it people really think it is. That's ultimately what's going to happen. But I do expect Nikhil Harry to stay on this Patriots roster come week one. And, you know, the questions will remain into the into the trade deadline when that comes up in the NFL offseason if he's going to get traded then. But for for right now, Nikhil Harry has no trade value. And if I were the Patriots, I would hold on to him until he proves that he is worth more than a limited trade value. Finally, as we wrap up our show, we wrap it up the way we always do by looking at our LOL moment of the week. And I got to tell you, this was kind of a tough decision for me personally. There were a lot of good moments out there. I mean, the match between Phil and Brady and Bryson and Rogers, that could have been a whole moment within itself. There was Devin Booker's specially labeled water bottle during game one of the NBA finals, but there was one moment that stood above them all. So without any further ado, this week's LOL moment of the week is going to go to Vladimir Guerrero Jr., the best hitter outside of Shohei Otani in the MLB right now, possibly, and just an all-around great character. So let me break it down for you how it happened. Usually the MLB takes a few days to release their mic'd up videos. We get a couple of players that wear the microphone and give us some sound bites. And there was a video that was just released this past week from the series between the Seattle Mariners and the Toronto Blue Jays. Now, the man who was mic'd up was Ty France for the Seattle Mariners. He was playing first base. And after Vladimir Guerrero Jr. takes the walk... France, you know, you do your kind of joking with him on the base. You know, you kind of tell him, still surprised they're throwing strikes at you. That's what France said. And then he was saying, why don't you just take off? Let us pick you off. And Vlad Jr. goes, oh, hell no. And, you know, they're joking, they're joking. And then Vlad Jr., this is the moment that got him this, this week's moment. He said that probably his teammate, Randall Gritchick, is going to hit a double down the line, and he's going to score from first base. That's right. He looked into his crystal ball while he was on first base, and he told Ty France, I am going to score from first after my teammate hits a double. And sure enough, 
That happened. He slid in safe. And Ty France can do nothing but just turn his head and laugh and smile. You know, he went over to one of the base umpires saying, he told me exactly what was going to happen. He said, Grichik was going to hit a double and he scored from first. And they're both just standing there just like, wow. But, you know, when you're the kind of hitter that Vladimir Guerrero Jr. is, you know, you can kind of make the assumptions like that. You can make assumptions like that. I mean, like I, like I said, he's probably the second best hitter and the second biggest star in the American League outside of Shohei Otani. I mean, he's the MLB batting average leader. He's second in home runs. He's first in RBIs. He's tied for third in hits. I mean, he's got a top five in almost every category in the offense. And if Shohei Otani wasn't in the American League, that would be your AL MVP right there. That would be it. Vlad Jr. right there. And, you know, that's why I'm a fan of the MLB, too. I talked about it during the All-Star segment, how I'm not a fan of, like, Rob Manfred and all that, but... We're starting to see like some characters and some personalities in the MLB, which is what I really like to see. I mean, with guys like Otani, Ju- Vlad Jr., Fernando Tatis Jr., I mean, all these characters and personalities, just it's it's making baseball fun again. It's making it fun, and that's what I like to see. And especially, you know, with the legacy of Vlad Guerrero Sr., you know, I remember him when I was growing up. Always had that the no batting gloves and stuff like that during his time with the Angels and and all of that. You know, I, I am a fan of Vlad Jr. Obviously I don't want to be because he's the division rival with the Red Sox, but he's gotta be he's gotta be a fan favorite. If he's if he's not a fan favorite for for some fans in the MLB, they gotta get their heads checked because this guy is captivating. He's one of the few guys that's captivating the MLB world. And is keeping it watchable because he's looking into his crystal ball and he's saying, yeah, I know my team. I know how fast I am. I know how good my teammate is. I'm just going to score from first. That's all I'm going to do. And I'm going to let you know right now there's nothing you can do about it. So Vladimir Guerrero Jr. goes into the All-Star break on a high note by not only his Toronto team being contenders in the AL playoff race, but being a predictor into his crystal ball and knowing exactly what his teammate was going to do and how he was going to score lands him into this week's LOL moment of the week. So that will do it for this edition of Let Me Speak. Thank you very much for watching and for listening. Make sure you're dropping those likes, those comments, and make sure to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Just search Let Me Speak Podcast. And remember, as always, if you've got a point you got to get across, just tell the whole world, shut up and let me speak. <laughs>